So the Wizard of Oz was uh, put out, the movie, 80 years ago. Can you believe that? 80 years ago, one of the original. And there's still some phrases from the Wizard of Oz that inform our culture, that we recognize. I know we're going a little bit long with my presentation, cutting into my sermon time. Uh, but, uh, but watch this little just 30-second clip and see if you recognize one of the most um, phrases that still informs our culture today. Go ahead and run that. So you recognized it, huh? We're not in Kansas anymore, huh? Have you ever had a moment like that where you realize, huh, I am not, this is not, I'm not familiar with the ways that this place works. You'd think that I had that experience in Lebanon, which I did, but I, I had more of an expectation of that. I was thinking of another time when we were traveling down to uh, my brother's house, he was living in, in Georgia, and we wanted to surprise him for his 30th birthday. And so my mom, my, my sister, and my niece, uh, and myself all loaded up, and we had our little doxy dog, right? So as I was about 25, and then three generations of women in my family were heading from Illinois to Georgia. We stopped at a rest area in Kentucky, and I went to put the car, it was a Mercury Sable, still remember, in reverse, and um, the transmission wouldn't connect. And my mom was like, Eric, stop joking around, put it in reverse. I'm like, Mom, it is not working. So we were stuck in Kentucky. So we got towed to a hotel, I still remember this motel, Sleepy Hollow, there were no phones in the rooms, and this is before cell phones, right? And I don't think the sheets have, had ever been changed since the beginning. So we were very, very uncomfortable. We could not order a pizza or anything like that. We survived the night, and the tow truck guy came to pick me up to figure out what was wrong with the car, and my mom simply said, Eric, don't return unless you are, you are driving a car. <laughs> so thank you, Mom. Love you, too. I was driven to, I guess, a mechanic shop, but there was no, it was just this open field. There was no other businesses, no other things. I walk in, and there's just eight guys with wrenches looking at me. And I realized I was not in Kansas anymore. <laughs> nor Illinois, I was literally in Kentucky. And they were telling me it was $2,000 for a transmission. And I knew it wasn't going to go over well when I was going to say, uh, no, I, no, uh, we have to be towed to the fort. So, so we got towed away, I survived, it was okay. But I recognized that they saw me for the, for the suburbanite that I was. 
that they recognized that there was a difference there. And I was concerned. I was wrestling through that. There's an interesting idea and concept in the New Testament that sometimes is lost on us, that we miss it, that connects with we're not in Kansas anymore. In fact, uh, perhaps the Apostle Peter put it best when he wrote this. We have it uh, on the screens. He says, go to the next screen, Cindy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners. He's talking to Christians here. He's calling you and I foreigners, not citizens in this world. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Who's he talking to? You and I, Christians. He's calling us foreigners and exiles, or depending on the translation, sojourners or pilgrims to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against the soul. Why is he calling you and I foreigners and exiles? Look at your neighbor and go, are you a foreigner? I don't, you don't belong here. Now say, you're not from around here, are you? There, there's this idea in the New Testament, boy, I let other people preach for two weeks and now they mess my earpiece up here. All right. Um, th- this idea is, is that you have gone through, if you are a Christian, if you've asked Christ Jesus into your life, you've gone through this profound spiritual transformation. You have moved from the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of darkness, scripture calls it, to the kingdom of heaven. That you have become a citizen of a different kingdom, of a different uh, nation or space. That you now have become a foreigner to the world. It doesn't matter whether you live in Lebanon or Iran or England or, or the United States that you now have transferred and become a, a foreigner, a non-citizen, a pilgrim in this world and your citizenship is now in heaven. And therefore you travel And we're meant to have moments of, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're meant to have, spiritually speaking, you're not from around here anymore. That that's meant to be the Christian life that Christ died for you to have is that you would therefore have your citizenship, your allegiance, your values, your ways, your perspectives, how you see the world are informed from where you're from and now you're from heaven and you're not from earth anymore. And the ways in which you live, the rhythms of your life, the the words that you speak are derived from your home country, which is the kingdom of heaven. 
the last several weeks, we've been walking through the beautiful prayer, the high priestly prayer of Jesus in verse 17, uh, chapter 17 of the Gospel of John. Would you turn with me there if you've brought your Bibles? If not, there are some Bibles located in the seats uh, in front of you or, or below you. And we've been walking through and looking at, we have this beautiful expression of Jesus praying for his disciples before the cross, before the death and resurrection and ascension. And we're learning from his prayers. He's teaching us how to pray. He's also teaching us what life, how life in the kingdom of heaven is meant to be lived here on earth. And he's going to weigh, in these next couple of verses, he's going to weigh in on, um, on this idea of we're not, from, we're not in Kansas anymore. I'm going to read to you, starting at verse 13. We're going to go through verse 19. John chapter 17, starting at verse 13. Remember, he's praying. He prays to the Father, I am coming to you now, talking about the ascension. But I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may, the, the disciples and you and I, they may have the full measure of my joy within them. Such a beautiful phrase. Full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. A lot packed into those few verses. Just a few observations for us this morning. One is it seems Jesus gives very articulate, very careful articulation. He says, my disciples are not to be of the world, but I'm not pulling them out. I'm not pulling them out. I'm not taking them with me. There's reasons for that. And he prays in such a way that really should inform in a profound sense what our life should be like in the world, as we live in the world. Look at verse 13 and 14. What struck me as I was reading this this week is the contrast and almost conflict between verse 13 and verse 14. Jesus says, I'm going to you, Father, I'm coming to you, and that my joy, they'll receive the full measure of my joy within them. Isn't that an awesome phrase? 
Sign me up for that, yes. Who would like a life full of the full measure of Jesus' joy? Yes, you, you, you ready for that one? Yes, let's do it. Except next verse, what does he say? And the world's gonna hate them. Yes, yeah, who signed sign me up for that? Yeah, huh? how does that work? Are, and in one sense, are those two things mutually exclusive? If the world is really going to hate us, if we're going to face pain and sorrow and loss and struggle, even within our family, right? Because we have an enemy of our soul. Are we really in the midst of that going to have the fullness of God, Christ's joy in our life? You ever notice how the, the Holy Spirit sometimes works by repetition? He keeps re repeating this theme in my life of joy. It's been actually about two years now. So apparently I'm not learning what he's trying to teach me, all right? So I'm trying to pay particular attention. What does it mean to walk in the fullness of joy in light of the fact that the world will hate us if we're living the life? I have a confession. I think that I associate joy mostly with how the world associates joy. That I think of travel. I think of uh, authority without responsibility. I, I think of uh, wealth. I, I think of family times, but good times. None of the hard, difficult times, but good times. Right, And I associate that idea with joy. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? I want to suggest that most of us, when we think of joy, we think of those circumstances, right? And we long for more of that. Who doesn't long for more of those things? More wealth and more travel, more freedom, more, more of those things. And yet that can't be what Christ means by joy if he realizes that simultaneously the world is going to hate us. So what does he mean? How does he resolve? How can we experience a full measure of joy? I would say the Gospel of John builds up this idea of joy. And if you look at a little bit earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about joy in John 15, 10, 11. He says this, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Hear how relational this is. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This seemed to be a, 
a theme that Jesus really liked. What he's saying is joy that I'm talking about is the kingdom of heaven joy that lies within, that is about relationship and is about intimacy with me and the Father. That is really outside. Our brains go to circumstances and joy. And Jesus says, nope, that's not what I'm talking about. Right? Circumstances, you're going to face difficulty and pain and struggle. But I'm talking about a deeper joy, an abiding joy that is unaffected by circumstance. But it's within. It's from relationship with the Lord. The, the best analogy I could think of is uh, some of you know I've, I have a very, very good longtime friend who's in a federal penitentiary. And um, we, me and a, another friend have gone to visit her several times, um, three times actually. And the last time we were there, again, we're in this, uh, another state, West Virginia, and we're in this federal penitentiary, and, you know, the, the, the prisoners are wearing, you know, orange jumpsuits, and you've got guards, and you had to empty your pockets and do all the drill you can imagine. And, and it's, a, it's a woman's uh, federal penitentiary, and you've got these women in orange jumpsuits and their moms and their grandmas, their... Uh, a lot of them doctors and lawyers and physicians. And they're, uh, a lot of them, white-collar crime. And so sad to see the, the grandkids and, and the children that are coming and only getting these few days or hours with their mom or grandma. So it's just, it's a sad scene. Um, it's not at all a joy-filled place, right? My friend and I, who've been close friends for our whole lives, were there and we, we got to spend a day, day and a half with the friend and we played some cards and we told some old stories and we talked and we talked and talked and we laughed and we laughed and we laughed. And it was right in the midst of this, probably the hardest thing that my friend has ever been through. She's being valiant. And yet right in the midst of that was this joy, was this laughter, was literally tears of joy when we came and when we left. I thought that's true joy. That's joy that, that can take place regardless of how joyless the circumstance and the environment is. And incredibly, Jesus is saying, I am giving you a life that gets to express the full measure of my joy. You see, when we place joy on circumstance, then just about Anything in this world can rob us of our joy, correct? 
Yes? But when we place joy in relationship with the Lord, in talking with the Lord, in journeying with the Lord, in praying, in, in sharing our lives with the Lord and with others, when that joy is rooted in relationship, then what can steal our joy? I want to suggest nothing. Right? That, that that's right there. And Jesus is wanting us to live that joy regardless of the outward circumstance. One other reference in the Gospel of John, John 16, he's building up, which is just a neat part of the joy. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name, Jesus said, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. I think he's talking about not only the joy of relationship, but also the joy of provision, that it gives our Heavenly Father delight in providing for us. And there's different times in life that we get to say, wow, my dad loves me. He just gave me this, to live and to walk and to journey. Now let's talk about the other side of that contrast. Jesus says, you'll walk, you can walk in the full measure of my joy, which I'm longing to do. He's teaching me to do that. But also, he said, the world will hate us. So how do we respond to this idea that we have an enemy of our soul? He promises one that the Father will protect us, that that he's got us. I was asking the question with the reality, what should we do in the understanding that the world will hate us? I want to suggest two things. You heard uh, this word is being used a lot in our culture today, mindfulness. In fact, there's a book that's just out being mindful of different things. Physicians and doctors say you need to be mindful of your body, right? If If you're coughing, if you're hurting, you need to come in and be mind, not don't blow that off, right? Just be mindful of what's going on. I think that we need to be mindful of the spiritual reality that is around us. And we need to be mindful that scripture says that just because it's spiritual doesn't make it good. Yes? That there is an evil spiritual reality in our midst. I think that the American church can be lulled asleep by dismissing or not giving any credence to that we have an enemy of our soul, that he has cohorts that is seeking to disrupt God's kingdom work in this world. And if we are pressing into the lives that he died for us to have, then he is going to scheme. He's going to plot. He's going to attack. He's going to set traps. We see it almost weekly, don't we? Within his church. Again, the apostle Peter says this. He's talking about the enemy, the devil, and he says, be self-controlled and alert. Be awake, be watchful, be mindful. 
your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. He's saying, watch out for this. Our Lord has told us that the world will attack, that evil will attack. The Christian life is not meant to be peaches and cream, peaches and cream. The Christian life will face hardship and difficulty and pain. And I want to suggest, the more mature in your faith you become, the more that you're doing for the kingdom of God, the greater the attack will be. The greater the schemes of the enemy will be. And yet the Lord says, I'm not going to pull you out. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. But press in. A second principle is this. This is somewhat of an odd principle, but if you've been at the church for long, you've heard me talk about it. Is be shrewd. Be shrewd. Jesus made this incredible statement. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. The snake or the serpent in Scripture is a symbol and represents whom? Satan, Satan, the enemy. Why would he tell us to be shrewd as serpents? Isn't that a good one? What he's saying is, you're going to be living among serpents. This world, when he says shrewd, he's not talking about sinning in any way. He's not talking about moral compromise. He is talking about piercing wisdom. And he said, you're going to be dealing with people in this world that don't share the same values of the kingdom of heaven that you do, that they don't share the idea of justice and integrity and fairness and compassion. In fact, they're going to be out to take from you what they can. He says, so don't live blind to this. Be mindful that the enemy is going to set those plans, that people who are broken and hurt and struggling in sin will seek to take advantage. Don't be naive. Be shrewd. How much do I have to unpack that? Are you with me? Do you see that? You can apply this in many ways. In politics, If your politics do not take into account the depravity of man, your politics are naive. If your professional life does not have an element of shrewdness in that, you're vulnerable, be taken advantage of. If your relationship isn't mindful that people are broken and sin, then you're setting yourself up for a world of delusionment and disappointment. 
What Jesus was saying is, I'm calling you to wisdom and understanding. Yes, don't sin. Be innocent as a dove. But be mindful that I'm sending you in a world that has wolves, that has snakes, that has people that will take advantage. It's a warning. I'm feeling overly negative, but those are Jesus' words. Yes? Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. All right, one last thing is the repetition of, of sanctification. Did you notice in those verses he repeats this idea of sanctification oftentimes? And oftentimes we think of sanctification as holiness, which there's an element for sure, but Jesus makes a statement that I think is unparalleled in the rest of the Gospels. Again, look at verse 19 with me. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus is saying, I'm modeling a sanctified life. There's really two aspects of sanctification I think Jesus is emphasizing in light of this prayer. One is is that he's saying that Christians, citizens of the kingdom of God, are people who are set apart for God's work in this world. That, That you are set apart for the kingdom of heaven advancing in this world. Hebrews 7.26 says, such a high priest truly meets our needs, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He's saying Jesus has been set apart for a purpose. Do you have anything in your house that you set apart for a particular purpose. You might have other things like a particular spoon or a glass or, or a bowl. What, what, so that's what Paul gives the analogy. I'm an American pastor, so I have a lot of Bibles, all right? I know it's not, I'm not really bragging, like most of you have a lot of Bibles too, right? So different translations and study Bibles, right? So I've got them. And, um, and yet this one Bible... I have set apart because there's, there's margins and I can write and I can take notes. And so this Bible, of all the Bibles I have in my house, I don't know how many I have, I've set this Bible apart for, for two reasons. One is I can have my personal times with the Lord and I can take notes. And then two, it's a good preaching Bible. It's not falling apart yet. Right, So it stays together here. And and so it's set apart. When I went to Lebanon, I was going to take, I also have a travel Bible. Really, I'm not bragging that everybody has travel, all right? And yet, I didn't want to take my travel Bible because I was going to spend time with the Lord in Lebanon and I was going to preach. What, What Jesus is saying is that you, of all the people in the world, You have been set apart for a kingdom purpose. 
right? I, I can't tell you what your purpose is. I, I, it's within the kingdom of God, but that's part of the journey. That's, that's part of being a pilgrim in the kingdom of heaven is we're journeying saying, Lord, if you've prepared me, if I have a role to play in your kingdom, what have you set me apart for? It could be a people group. It could be a cause, right? It, uh, it could be a particular community of faith, the church. It could be a role, elder, deacon, pastor. It could be children's ministry, youth ministry. It could change over time, but he set you apart to play a role. That's what Jesus is saying. Just as I have been sanctified, so they are set aside for a particular purpose in the kingdom of God. Friends, what have you been set apart for? And that's directly related to this other idea of sanctification, not only set apart, but on mission. It's a sent life. Going back to that first Peter, the sojourner, the pilgrim, you're not meant to be settled as a Christian. Right? He says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. I'm sending you. I think the church, especially in the United States, is too comfortable and too settled. Amen? Amen. We are not living sent lives. We're not living lives on mission. One of the beautiful things about Pastor Gabby, some of you would know this about him because you've heard him. Pastor Gabby is sent to the Lebanese people. Here's the interesting thing. He's from Lebanon. He is Lebanese. But he's been sent to minister to those people. It's, he is a missionary in his own country, right? Shouldn't that be us? Whether it's here, right here in, the neighbor, in, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our relationships, we are meant to have this idea of mission. Whether it's meeting new people, whether it's connecting some of you know that uh, my wife and I, our, our family, we just uh, sold a house. We've been working on this for eight months and have moved into a new neighborhood. And uh, we just slept for the first time two nights ago in our new home. So that's why I'm a little bit still unconscious. We're still moving. We're still going here. Our desire is to be sent to this new neighborhood. I'm not bragging. I haven't met a single neighbor yet. So, right? But this is all my intention. This is all our desire is that we're to be on mission, that to a certain degree we've been set apart as, as citizens, as sojourners, as ambassadors. Scripture uses different words to communicate this idea. We are sent in this foreign place 
to represent the values and the ways and the gospel of Jesus Christ so that we might win some and invite some on the journey with us. Let's pray.